Craig. I'm one of the elders here at Calvary Bible Church. We're going to be looking this morning at Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. And I'm going to be using the New American Standard Version 1995 edition. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. A good name is better than a good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Because that in the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. From when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of the morning, while the mind of the fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to listen to a rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool. And this is futility, too is futility. For oppression makes a wise man mad. And a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry. For anger resides in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Wisdom along with a good inheritance is good. And the advantage of those who see under the sun. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten that he has bent? Thus says the Lord God. Thank you, Dustin. Well, good morning, all. Let's try that again. Good morning. It's good to be here with you all. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn if you have not already. We are in our eighth week of a 14-week series going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Ecclesiastes. And today, what I really would like to talk to you about is your reputation. What people will say about you when you are gone. Much like Romans to Paul... Ecclesiastes to Solomon is his magnum opus. If you've been here for any length of time, then you, uh, hopefully you are captivated as I have been with this book. It is brilliant. But its brilliance hides behind a veil of pessimism. So what you have to do is you have to pierce through the initial reaction that you have towards his kind of grumpy Words, and then if you pierce through your initial visceral reaction, you will see life and truth. As someone recently said to me, the truth hurts sometimes, and it just does. I mean, you cannot read the book of Ecclesiastes without some type of emotion, without wincing just a little bit, okay? Has, have any of you experienced that? It's like you wince like right before the needle goes in your arm for a shot, okay? Because everything in life under the sun is really unpacked. Every sensitive subject, sin, lust, money, greed, poverty, pain, life, death, injustice in the world, and so forth. But today, what Solomon really unpacks for us is our reputation, is our good name. What kind of name 
are we leaving behind? And what I see in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, is we see a hinge of the two halves. Solomon uses this poem to kind of connect the two halves of the book together. And what I see is the central theme is your reputation or your good name, how a good name is like is better than good ointment. And then we see in verses 1 through 13, five different principles that help us leave behind a good name. You don't have to answer this question. How many of you would like to leave behind a good name, a good reputation? Hopefully all of us. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no one probably say, I want to be remembered terribly. Okay. Um, just think of somebody in your life who could have been a teacher or a pastor of a church or a president, maybe not so much. Um, think of somebody who has a good reputation. Think of a face. What kind of character traits come with a good reputation? What kind of character traits come to mind of that person? And I'm asking. Honesty. Very good. What else? Loyalty. Good. What else? What? what? Faithfulness. Very good. What else uh, that leave behind a good name, a good reputation? Gentleness. Yes. What else? Integrity, thoughtfulness, kindness. Now, how many of you have ever known somebody that left behind a good name? And how many of you have ever left behind or known somebody that left behind a not-so-good name? A real-life Ebenezer Scrooge. Maybe you were walking in your neighborhood one time and an old man told you to get off his lawn. Okay. This comes from the book, A Christmas Carol. This is how it describes Ebenezer Scrooge. I read that book recently, just for this sermon. Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. The cold within him froze his features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheeks, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke shrewdly with a grating voice. How many of you want to be remembered that way? (laughs) Okay. None of us. All of us here today, I would imagine, want to leave behind a good name, a good reputation. But what does it take? How do we cultivate a good name? That is Solomon's task today. We all want to leave behind a stellar reputation. We want our children to speak well of us our friends to remember us fondly, our co-workers to speak about us positively in the break room. We all want to leave it behind. But how do you cultivate that? And that is Solomon's task today. So if you have your text with me, look at it here in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. And as we enter into the text, let us just remember the setting of our story. Who is speaking? Who wrote this book? It is Solomon. Who is what? Who is the wisest and richest man that has ever walked the planet Earth? And what is his concern? What is his implicit theme in the book? It is a life well lived. This book does not describe eternal life or eternal rewards. That is a different topic for a different day. This book is the Mona Lisa of wisdom literature. That in a world... That is fallen. In a world that is darkened by sin, in a world 
that is broken with the injustices of life, with sickness and pain in this world down under the sun, how can we have a wonderful life? How can we have a great life? And really boils down to five different principles. I'll just quickly revisit them. Number one is to embrace that life is short. One day, if you haven't already, you will wake up and say, how did I become 37 years old? Principle number two is to simply just embrace that life is, what's the word? Unfair, that there are just injustices in life under the sun. But what should we remember when we begin to be gripped with the bitterness and resentment of life towards people that have wronged us, what should we remember according to Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes? That two things, that God is sovereign. What does that mean? It means he is in control and what else? That he is just. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. What does Romans 12 say? Never pay back evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. Number three, we should enjoy God's blessings, enjoy what God has given to us under the sun. Number four, we should fear God. That is not unhealthy, but it is healthy to fear the Lord. And we should balance it all out with keeping God's commandments. And today, it's, it's just really uh, Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 through 13, if I could put it in a word, is random. Just random. Because as you're kind of going along in the book and you have similar themes, and if you feel like I have preached the same thing uh, eight times, you probably would be right because Solomon is just repeating himself over and over and over again. I'm just simply a slave to the text. I apologize. Um, but really, he just kind of all of a sudden takes a left-hand turn and unpacks something about a good name. Notice it with me. If you have your text, I'm not going to quickly dive in. I want you to just simply make some observations with me. And the key to good exegesis is asking good questions. How you come up with good questions is you make good observations. Observations are simply answering the question, what do I see? So if you have your hard copy Bible, I would encourage you to open it and just look at the text with me. Look at verses 1 through 13. If you notice it, it looks a little bit different. It's kind of set off to the side. What does that tell you? It tells you that this is a poem. Now, a Hebrew poem, I mean, okay, whenever you read a poem, you do not interpret it the way that you would interpret a story or the way you would interpret some other type of genre. When you read a poem, do you interpret, number one, everything super literal? Please say no, okay? And number two, when you Look at a poem. A poem is structured typically to make a single point. So what is Solomon's point today? Now, when I was unpacking this text, this is whenever you look at different commentaries, and you have a host of different commentaries, and there's a bunch of different interpretations of the same passage, that signals to you that this passage is probably a little bit difficult to interpret itself. So what a lot of scholars struggle with is that, is, is this section of the scripture a series of different principles, or is there one theme that ties it all together? And number two, if you, observation number two, you see that it is a poem. Observation number two is, is there a single thread that binds it together? Initially, I thought that this, these 13 verses were just a series of random principles 
But as I looked in observation number three, you look at the first line. Just notice the first line with me. And then notice the second, and then notice the third, and then notice the fourth. I'll give you a moment to pause. I want you to read the first line, and then the second, third, and fourth. In Hebrew poetry, when you have that, how many, how many of you actually read that text and said, you know, the first part of verse 1 just doesn't seem to fit? Anybody else get that impression? He all of a sudden talks about having a good name, then he goes into life and death and gloom and doom and despair is what it seems like. So what he's actually doing, by doing that, he's signaling the theme or the thread that he is unpacking in this poem And a lot of times in Hebrew literature, how you find out the theme of a particular psalm is the very first line. Think about some famous psalms. Psalm 23. The theme of Psalm 23 is revealed in the very first line. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in one. That whole psalm is unpacking how the Lord is his shepherd. Psalm 139. Verse 1 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. The whole psalm is about that theme. So the whole poem in verses 1 through 13 is circling around, in my opinion, a good name. Notice verse 1. A good name is better than good ointment. Solomon here addresses a good name, but the question we have to answer is why is a good name, how does that really fit within the context of the book of Ecclesiastes? What is the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes? It is a life well lived. So the question I had to this week is how does a good name fit into a life well lived? Let me just ask you a question. Um, if your reputation is Ebenezer Scrooge, okay, What's your life going to be like? <laughs> okay, pretty miserable. Are you going to have a good life if your reputation precedes you and it's bad? Probably not. But if you have a good name, if you have a name that people respect and that people honor, even if they've never seen you or met you before, are you apt to have a good life? If you are thought to be generous and wise and thoughtful, people will remember you and think of you in a certain way, and your life will be probably a bit more joyful. Give you an illustration. Um, can I just speak? It's a little exhausting being grumpy, and I could probably use that lesson. <laughs> okay, I've been a little bit grumpy this last year. Um, when I worked for a car rental company, the same people would walk into the branch, and they would have the same grumpy face on. Have you ever met those kind of people? They walk up, I would see these people walk, I still remember their faces. They would walk up the steps right before they would walk into the branch. I would see like three employees run out the back door, okay? And then I'd be like, really, thanks. Um, it's exhausting being grumpy. That person hasn't said a word, but they have this reputation already preceding them. Is that what you want people to remember you by? How do you want people to remember your name? How do you want your children to speak of you after you are gone? How do you want your coworkers and your friends? I hope that you want them to speak well of you, but how do we cultivate a life 
of a good reputation. Notice verse 1a again. A good name is better than good ointment. The ointment there, we don't really understand this in our culture, but number one, ointment was a measure of wealth. Much like the dollars in your bank account or the car you drive or the house you have, those in our culture are a sign of wealth. Ointment was a sign or a signature of wealth. Think about in the New Testament, ointment. What, okay. What did the lady anoint Jesus' feet with? Perfume or ointment? And remember the scolding that she received because how much did that ointment cost? It was 300 denarii or 300 days of wages. Let me just put that in perspective. That bottle of wine, or not wine, uh, the, that bottle of perfume or ointment cost $61,000. Ointment was a sign of wealth. Number two, ointment had a practical use in burial. It covered the smell of decay. But then number three, I was thinking about this this week. Our sense of smell directly ties to our emotions. I would imagine most of you can still smell your mother's perfume. Or you remember smelling your grandparents' house or your friend's house. Growing up, on Sunday mornings, on occasion, my parents would get up in the morning and they would cook bacon. Anybody else love the smell of bacon in here? Okay. Amen, man. If you didn't raise your hand, you're not a full-blooded American, okay? Um, but I would, before I would even roll out of bed, I would instantly smell bacon, and instantaneously my emotions signal something within me. That is our reputation. That our reputation precedes us. The way people perceive us, the way you perceive a smell dictates your opinion of that food and interprets people's opinions of you. Who are some people in history that have good reputation? They have a good smell about them. But notice with me, how do we cultivate a good name? A good name is cultivated in verses 1b through 4b. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of the feasting, because that is the end of every man. Notice here in the end of verse 2, And the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. What in the world is it talking about? Look Just look at the text with me. How many lines do you see there? If you take verse 1a and said that is the theme, then notice verses 1b through 4b. How many lines do you have? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. You have nine lines. Notice in the 1b, he introduces the principle. Then in 2, he illustrates the principle. Then in 2c and d, he gives you the reason for the principle, the reason it gives you a good name. And then notice in 3 through 4, you have an illustration of the principle again. So you have 4, 1, 4. What is the principle? In order to cultivate a good name, you must begin with the end in mind. Can I just speak very bluntly? Um, If you want to leave a good name, you must have a very real sense that one day you will die. 
Is that harsh? <laughs> okay. Who likes to talk about death? Why do I say that? Because if you know that one day you will die and you know that your children will speak of you one day after you are gone and you want them to speak fondly of you, then you must embrace that one day you will die and I have to live a certain way in order to leave a legacy. A good name is cultivated by beginning with the end in mind. Knowing that you will die. Let's just pick apart the text. Notice 1B. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth, which makes sense in the context of the theme. This line is introducing the principle. But why is the day of one's death better than his birth? 2D or 2C and D. Notice it with me. Because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. What is he saying? That those who begin with the end in mind know it and live accordingly. They have a very real sense of their own immortality. Having a real grasp of that your days are numbered will give you the incentive to live a life that people admire. Um. Let me illustrate the importance of having the finish line in mind. How many of you have ever run a race before? Okay, I pity you. Um, it's painful. Okay, um, I ran one race in my lifetime, and I was crazy enough to start off my running career with a marathon. Bad idea. Um, which one's more important to think about while you're running? The starting line or the finish line? Amen. <laughs> I was thinking the whole time that I was 19 years old running that that cannot come fast enough. Keeping the end in mind gives you the incentive to persevere. Death is our finish line. Actually, on earth it's our finish line. Keeping it in mind. The theologian Steve Jobs, obviously I'm being sarcastic, said this. Death is very likely the single best invention of life. It is life's change agent obviously he didn't know his bible but he understood the importance of knowing your end in order to leave a good name if you think that you'll always will live tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow then you can act all grumpy and you can just fix it tomorrow but one day keep the end in mind one day you will pass away and how will people speak of you to a living adult it's much more important to have a firm grasp of your end than your beginning what do we always celebrate? We celebrate birthdays. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, okay? But maybe we should celebrate death days, okay? Okay. Um, maybe just having a firm reality in that will give us the incentive to leave behind a good name. Notice, continue verse 4. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. How do you leave? How do you plant, sow, and reap a good name? You begin with the end in mind. The living take it to heart. But then notice principle number two for leaving it. Verse five. This is the next principle. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. What is he saying? Verse six. For as the crackling of thorns bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool, and this too is futility. What is this verse, these two verses talking about? It's talking about the company you keep. When you're in high school, okay, we'll go back to those awkward years, okay, for all of us. 
was your reputation built upon who you hung out with? You better believe it. When people who did not know you saw who you hung out with, what did they automatically associate with you? That's who you are. That is your character. It is better to listen to the rebuke of the wise man. Can I just um, speak? If you are young in this room, young people, I cannot tell you how important it is for you to surround yourself with good influences. We often run from people that will tell us the honest truth. Because guess what? The truth stings sometimes. But if you are young, surround yourself with good influences. Surround yourself with people that will hold you accountable. Surround yourself with people that will bring you back to the truth of Scripture. Surround yourself with people that will call you out on your junk. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. Which one's easier to listen to? Those people that build you up all the time, that only have good things to say, or those that ridicule you on occasion? I have, man, I tell you, uh, we have a terrific elder and deacon board here. I cannot say enough about those men that serve on that board. And every once in a while, they will pull me aside. They'll kind of do one of these numbers, right? You pull you aside and kind of say, hey, Byron, you know, can you chill out on that? You're about to shoot your foot off, okay? And, and, I, and it stings just a little bit, right? It, it hurts. The rebuke hurts, but it, I know it's for my good. Because if I want to leave a good name behind, then I must be mindful of my junk. And I must surround myself with people that will call it like it is. There is safety in a multitude of advisors. Proverbs thirteen twenty. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Can I just pause? How, do you, how can you tell the difference between a fool and a wise person? The simplest way is this. Do the people that surround you, do they know and obey the scripture? Proverbs 11.22, where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Psalm 1.1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. When people call us out, even if we're wise people, we distance ourselves from them. But instead, what you should do is listen and be humble and change. Young people in the room, surround yourself with good influences. Because not only will it determine your name, but it will dictate the direction your life goes. But you older people in this room, you have something to offer. Be willing to share the wisdom that God has given you. As long as your lungs have breath, God has you here for a reason. Mentor. Share the wisdom. Share your life lessons. Share the mistakes that you've made, okay? Because we don't want to make the same mistakes. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools that if you want to cultivate a good name, a good reputation, you must 
keep good company. Parents of teenagers in the room. Parents of teenagers in the room. What is your greatest concern? Who their friends are. Because <laughs> bad company ruins good morals. I can, let me, here's the thing. I have, over the last year, I won't air out anything. Over the last year, I have surrounded myself with some very expensive advice, okay? Called lawyers, accountants, financial advisors, consultants. I mean, I've spent tens of thousands. Just, here, please, just make sure I'm not going to shoot my foot off. And it's been the wisest investment I have ever made in my life. I had a lawyer say of me in front of my sisters, she said, you know, Byron here, bless him, he asks a lot of questions, okay? Um, why am I doing that? I'm trying to make sure that I am safe. There's safety and a multitude of advisors. Surround yourself with good people. Surround yourself with people that will bring you back to God's word. And if you've lived a few years, then share what you have learned. Notice the next principle in verse 7. For oppression makes a wise man mad and a bribe corrupts the heart. Cultivating a good name, you begin with the end in mind. You keep good company. And principle number three, you what? What is it talking about? Verse 7, in a word. For oppression makes a wise man mad. A bribe corrupts the heart. What is it talking about? Principle number three is to walk with integrity. How many of you have ever known somebody that does not? How many of you have ever met somebody that cuts corners? That takes a little bit off the top? Do you think fondly of them? Probably not. But you think fondly of those that always do the right thing. You think fondly of those that know what is right and they do it. Walk with integrity. But notice here, for oppression makes a wise man mad, but a bribe corrupts the heart. Integrity is not just internal, it's external. And when somebody who has integrity notices a wrong, it makes them what? What is the emotion you have? For oppression makes a wise man angry. That is how you tell if you have integrity. If when somebody does something wrong, it makes you mad. When I worked at a car rental company, I was advised by a very wise person, okay? So there's safety in a multitude of advisors. I was advised... Uh, by a very wise person, not to mention the name of where I used to work so I don't get sued, and that's a good advice. Um, but when I worked there, the quickest way to get fired was lacking integrity. Man, the best, come to find out, okay, it was, it was dog-eat-dog, rat-eat-rat kind of culture, okay? And I'm glad I didn't say the name. There you go, okay. It was just this culture of sink or swim, and, and there was this one girl and she just killed it in sales i mean she was kicking everybody okay and come to find out she was falsely inflating her numbers but guess what happened to her Poof! the quickest way to get out of that job was to do something without integrity and good people who cut corners should be gone we must walk with integrity if you want to leave a good name have 
Principle number four in verses eight through twelve. How do you cultivate, plant, sow, and reap a good name? Begin with the end in mind. Keep good company. Walk with integrity. And then notice principle number four that you value wisdom. Verse eight. The end of the matter is better than its beginning. How many of you ever felt relief after a race? Okay, I slept the whole next day after that marathon, okay? You are what? You're probably more excited at the beginning of a project, but the end is always more rewarding. That is true. Patience of spirit is better than a proud spirit. How many of you struggle with patience in the room? Hmm. Maybe part of the reason why we struggle with patience is because our spirit is proud. We want our way. Our way is always best. I don't have to listen. Verse 9. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry. Oof. For anger resides in the bosom of fools. Oof. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, how many of you in here have a temper? Uh, how many of you live in a perpetual state of anger? <laughs> okay. Um, in our culture, anger is a safe emotion. It is culturally accepted. That it's okay to be that customer that walks into a rental car company and completely um, yells at this guy for doing absolutely nothing. It's perfectly acceptable in our culture. And it's socially awkward when somebody is sad, okay? That is so backward. We treat somebody who is crying like a leper, okay? It's like... But what does it call somebody that is angry? Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. How many of you have ever been angry and made a bad decision before? Like 40 billion times, okay? Verse 10, do not say, oof, do not say, why is that the former days were better than these? Oh, the good old days, right? Man, when I was in seminary, my life was perfect. Yeah, right, okay. For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. What is he saying? What is the theme of the book? To enjoy the present, to enjoy life. We have wishful thinking about the past and hopes about the future. We live in the past or we live in the future. Does anybody relate? When you're young, you live in the future, and when you're old, you live in the past. And the midlife crisis switches those two. We should live and enjoy the present. Learn from the past, enjoy the present, and plan for the future. Verse 11, wisdom along with an inheritance is good. What two things are an inheritance? Wisdom and money. How many of you have inherited mama's stuff, okay? Her, her antiques, okay? But how many of you have also inherited a good saying that your parents had? How many of you ever said, I'm becoming just like my dad, okay? Your parents passed along a piece of advice. Wisdom, along with an inheritance, is good. Verse 12, for wisdom is protection just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. 
If you could put it in a nutshell, cultivating a good name requires us to value wisdom. Every one of those statements in verses 8 through 12 are true. And they are wise. That enjoy today. <laughs> don't live in the past and don't live in the future. Just live in the present. Man, put away your phones. Quit trying to escape to a different world, hoping that you could somehow overcome your trials in the present. Just find a way to be present. And what principle is missing? Notice verse 13. Verse 14 I'm going to include with next week. It's some translations have it as part of the poem, and some do not. Principle number five is found in verse 13. Consider... The work of God. What is he saying? That in all events, all times, all trials, all good things, acknowledge God. That he is in control. Consider the work of God. Notice this causal relationship. Four. It's explaining why you should consider. Consider the work of God. Why? For who is able to straighten what has been bent? Principle number five is to acknowledge God in all things. Consider the work of God for who is able to straighten what he has bent. You can have all the wisdom in the world. You can try your best to change your circumstances. You can try your best to soften your child's heart. You can try your best to change your spouse. You could try your best to have a good reputation at work, but at the end of the day, you simply cannot control it. Acknowledge God. Consider the work of God for who is able to straighten what he has bent. In other words, depend on God. Trust God. Who is the only person in this world that you can control? You can do everything right in your eyes. You can have a profound understanding of your mortality. You can have all the things, enjoyment under the sun, but at the end of the day, you simply cannot change your child. You cannot change your job. You cannot change your boss. You cannot change your circumstances. That is just a reality of life. So let us what? Trust the Lord. Depend on Him. Consider the work of God. Why? For who is able to straighten what has been broken? Value wisdom. Keep good company. Walk with integrity. Begin with the end in mind. And simply realize that God is sovereign and in control. And there's nothing you can do about it. And if I could say this further, to add a thought. You can't enjoy life without God. Some of us are trying in this room. I'm off script. Some of us in here are trying to enjoy life outside of God's will. And your life will be a fistful of sand. Because it is truly impossible to leave a good name. It is truly impossible to enjoy life to the fullest without Him. It's impossible. What does it say in Ecclesiastes chapter 2? There is nothing better for a man to eat and to drink and to tell himself that his labor is good 
This is also I have seen that is from the hand of God for who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him. Um, maybe you have not abided by these principles. Maybe you're close to the end of your road. But guess what? Life's not over. You still have a chance to leave behind a good name. You still have a chance to reconcile with your child. You still have a chance to forgive those who have wronged you. Residing with anger in the bosom is a fool. As long as your lungs have breath, the Lord has something for you to do. What kind of name are you leaving behind? What kind of reputation will people say? Uh, One pastor said, you don't want your tombstone to say, here is a man. (laughs) Okay, that would be depressing. Um, you want people to say something good about you. And, and what I see in the text today is he gives us five principles to do it. Begin with the end in mind. Have a real grasp of your mortality. Keep good company. Value wisdom. Walk with integrity. Acknowledge God in all things. That is what I want to leave you with. Because your life will be so much better. If people think fondly of you before you walk in the door, then if people do not think fondly of you. As those customers that were always grumpy that walked into Enterprise Rent-A-Car, we, it was hard to be nice. It was hard to have a smile with those people, and it was hard to give them what they wanted, all right? Because they were just so grumpy and mean. I got, man, I got ripped up there, man. I had a thick skin when I worked there. You don't want that. You don't want that. You don't want to be the person that walks up those stairs that the employees run out the back door for. You don't want that in the grocery store. You don't want that in the checkout line. A few questions I'm going to leave you with, and they're on the back of your note sheet. There are notes and song lyrics in the back if you haven't grabbed one. Um, Just some questions to think about this week is think of someone that left a good name and if we're all honest we're all broken as sinful people and if people really think highly of us then they probably didn't really know us very well um so this is kind of true um think of someone that has left behind a good name what about them left behind a good name what are some of their character traits what allowed them to leave that impression in your mind And then assignment number two is to look at the five principles that you see in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verses 1 through 13 and answer the question, which one is easy for you? To acknowledge God in all things, to walk with integrity, and which one is most difficult? But the question we have to, I want to leave you with, and this is a very strategic question that I'm going to end with, is the question is, who is watching you? Who is determining your reputation? Who is determining your name? It is probably your children, the people in Awana, the people in church, your friend group. Who is watching you and what do they see? 
Because none of us want to be remembered as Ebenezer Scrooge. We all want to be remembered fondly. Before I close, I have two minutes. I share this every week, and sometimes I share it within 20 seconds, and sometimes I share it with five minutes. But today I'm going to do it with two minutes. Okay. Um, If you have never been changed by Jesus Christ, if you do not have a personal relationship with him, you may have been going to your church all your life, maybe you've been a member here for a long time, and you have never had the transformation that comes in the gospel, how do you become a Christian? Number one, you acknowledge your sin. There's no point in believing in the gospel if you don't understand your need for it. This is the truth. If you don't understand why you need Jesus, then you never will believe in him. So the first step in order to really becoming a Christian is to understand your sin, that you make mistakes, that God is holy and perfect. And that because of his perfection, we are eternally separated from him. But Jesus Christ has come and he has died and he has paid my debt in full. That if I would believe in him, that I shall be saved. We must acknowledge our need for Jesus. Acknowledge our sin. And then number two, we must believe in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And then number three, you must change your life. A Christian who does not change is not a Christian. That's controversial, but I don't really care. It's just the truth. I am not saved by good works, but because I am saved, I do good works. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one would boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared before him, so that we would, what, walk in them. It is impossible to come to the Lord and be the same. It's not biblical. I know it's controversial. I don't really care. It's just the truth. If you have never been changed, then you probably aren't a Christian. You've never been transformed. You don't have the living waters boiling up inside of you. You've never been born again. If you have more questions about Calvary or about how to become a Christian, feel free to see me after this service. I, um, today, I'm just going to speak, and I'm totally off script. I, I know that today's sermon was probably a bit heavy. Um, and probably a little bit more confrontational than we would like. <laughs> okay. Um, but uh, there's really not a lot encouraging about the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> okay. Um, but it's just reality check. You know? Would you rather have a preacher that tickles your ears or would you rather have a preacher that tells you the truth? I don't know if everybody would agree with that, but that's certainly what I would do. And that's what I try to do. I'm not perfect. My exegesis isn't perfect. But I certainly try to present the truth in an honest and sincere way. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning. Um, Lord, let, let us be mindful of our reputation, of the name we are leaving behind. For a good name is better than good ointment. It's better than wealth. It's better than uh, all the standards of the worldliness that we live in today. A good name is important. 
Lord, our name reflects your name if we claim the cross of Christ. And Lord, may we leave behind a name that people respect, that people admire, that people love, that we would be known in our communities, in our homes, in our marriages, as somebody that was just thoughtful and kind. Lord, we all fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short. May we just be mindful. May we listen to the rebuke of wise men in our lives that tell us we're messing up. May we be humble to listen. And may, Lord, I pray for the men in the room specifically, especially the married men. May they be humble enough to listen to their wives. <laughs> because they will tell you the truth. <laughs> okay, Whether you want to hear it or not. That is, thank you for this church. May we have a good name in the community. May we have a good reputation. Not a reputation of arguing and backward thinking, but a reputation of love. All men would know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. Lord, I pray that we would love one another, that we would love people, and that we would love you, and that we would not be bashful about preaching and living the truth. We thank you for today. I thank you for Calvary. I thank you for the age range of members we have here. How we have World War II veterans in this room. And then we have all the way down to one-year-olds. What a magnificent privilege that it is. Lord, may we relish and may we share the wisdom of God's word together. We lift up today in Jesus' name. Amen.